0: Hola, bienvenidos a la... Oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong language. Oh, the subject matter threw me. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Paul Levingood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and welcome to another banner lecture in the Robbins Family Forum here at the VHS. As always, I'd like to thank um, uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make this lecture series possible. Armed conflict between Mexico's rival drug cartels And the federal government there has become headline news here in the United States. Narcotics-related violence has destroyed tourism in many Mexican communities, and it's now cascading across the border into the U.S. In an explosive new book, our speaker explores how this spiral of violence emerged in Mexico, its impact on the country and its northern neighbor, and the prospects for managing it. And it just so happens that our museum shop carries this definitive account, which you can purchase after the lecture. It's not 70% off, but it's uh, still a good good deal. The title is Mexico, Narco-Violence and a Failed State. Dr. George W. Grayson teaches at the College of William & Mary. He's been a member of the government department there for nearly four decades. He's written more than 20 books and monographs on international affairs. His focus is Latin American (laughs) politics and he's he's the acknowledged expert on modern Mexico in this country today. He's also a former member of the Virginia House of Delegates, a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and an associate scholar of the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. He will put Mexican-American relations into historical context for us, and he will examine Mexico's efforts to tackle the demand and supply sides of the problems spawned by illegal drugs Making their way into the United States. Please join me in welcoming Dr. George Grayson.
1: Thank you uh, very much, Paul, and I also want to thank Nelson Langford for helping to uh, organize this this event. Uh, I plan to speak briefly. Uh, because I know that there is so much erudition, wit, and intelligence in the audience that I want to leave time for your, uh, uh, for your questions. Uh, the mention of Robert E. Lee uh, reminds me of a story that I think Will Molyneux, Will Molyneux in the center there, didn't quite make a book. You're lucky, <laughs> lucky uh, Will. Um, and I think it went something like this, and, and will you correct me, uh, that it was um, 1865, Richmond was burning. There was only one major building left uh, on Bank Street, what's now Bank Street at the uh, at the uh, the bottom of Capitol Square, and uh, uh, an apparition, a person, appeared uh, on the third floor of that building, and he was clearly going to commit suicide. And a crowd gathered underneath and said with one voice, don't kill yourself in the name of the Lord. And he said, the Lord has forsaken me. Don't kill yourself in the name of your family. And he said, my family has left me. And finally, after much consultation they said don't jump in the name of the general and he looks over and he says what general and the crowd says go ahead and jump you Yankee SOB <clears throat> <laughs> uh, generally I am an optimist uh, when Tiger Wood uh, tells me that he was just trying to check um, the fire hydrant at the end of his driveway, I'm sure he's, he was telling the truth. Uh, when that uh, former Nigerian finance secretary uh, sends me an email and says that I can share a quarter of a million dollars if I will just stroke him a, a check... Uh, I'm sure he's leveling with me, and he must be going through difficult times. And so I try to help him out. And um, I always fill out the publisher's clearinghouse application because I know that Ed McMahon's successor is going to show up uh, at our doorway one day with a check the length of this hall, and I will be on Easy Street the rest of my life. Uh, Despite this uh, general optimistic view of the world, uh, I'm extremely pessimistic uh, with regard to Mexico, and I share the pessimism of so many uh, of the 107.5 inhabitants of this uh, great country. Um, It was thought that when the PRI, which had governed the nation for 71 years left power, lost the presidency in 2000, that there would be a, uh, uh, major changes taking place with regard to corruption, with regard to efficiency, uh, with regard to education and health care. Uh, but uh, not only has the change not occurred, things have gotten worse, uh, the current chief executive, uh, Felipe Calderon, uh, whom I've known for about 20 years. Uh, as I was telling Queen Elizabeth yesterday, I hate name droppers. <laughs> 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 but, but he took office on uh, the 1st of, uh, of December, 2006. Uh, six months earlier, uh, in... A small town uh, in Michoacan. Here, um, a group of, of men entered a nightclub, the Sol y Sombra uh, nightclub, and they proceeded to take a plastic bag and they, they ripped it open. And they begin throwing human heads, human heads into the audience. How do you catch their duck? There you go. Almost. Almost. Nonetheless, you can play for the Redskins. <laughs> now, Whereas these are styrofoam heads, uh, in fact, the heads that they threw onto the dance floor uh, were heads that had been cut off of their antagonist the day before, uh, while these five men uh, were alive, and they used a chainsaw to decapitate them. This is a group known as La Familia. The family were the perpetrators of this violence, and there had been a love triangle involving a woman who worked at this sleazy nightclub and the fami- the family la familia uh, decided they would have their own trial. Uh, they identified these individuals, and you can see by the scowls on their face that they're no goodnicks. Uh, they identified these individuals as the culprits, Uh, and as a result, uh, they executed them summarily and took their heads and threw them on the dance floor. Um, This was to make a statement that we are the meanest, uh, leanest, most dangerous drug cartel in Michoacan, and no one had better look at us Uh, cross-eyed, or they can uh, expect to suffer the same fate. Uh, This La Familia movement has a messianic impulse. Uh, That is, they believe that they're doing the Lord's work, and they want to eliminate methamphetamine consumption in Michoacan. Uh, They also want to protect Uh, women and children, uh, but in the process they have adopted the most horrendous, the most grotesque uh, tactics that you can imagine. And there are copycats that have tried to emulate them, and at one point uh, nine soldiers uh, were killed and decapitated, and their bodies lined up as the various cartels vie for um, the reputation of being the most savage force uh, in the country. And I would tell you that these cartels have a presence north of the Rio Grande in 252 cities, that Atlanta has become a drug hub, much like Miami was uh, in the 90s, or L.A. was in the earlier part of this this century. Um, Raleigh uh, is another um, place where you find a strong presence of the cartels, as you do in in Birmingham. Now, to be a little bit less formal, I think I'll take off this, this jacket and... I didn't fall that time. I was here once before, and, um, and come down and try to talk to you about Mexico's evolution um, and why I think that it is a uh, a challenge worthy of Sisyphus uh, to try to win a war against drugs. Sisyphus, you'll remember. Uh, in Greek uh, lore, uh, was condemned to roll a huge rock up a hill. And every time you would get near the crest of the hill, the rock would roll back. Uh, And that is more or less what's happening with regard to Mexico. Um, A history lesson far too brief for uh, this distinguished institution, is that when the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, how you can institutionalize a revolution, I'm not sure, but I think Larry Wetzel will be able to tell us as a VMI, as a VMI graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, but the PRI had developed a triangle. And you had the president at the top, but he wasn't just the president, he was El Jefe Maximo. Now, I know you're going to get credit for your Spanish classes by coming to this talk. So, jefe maximo. Ready? Uh, uh, Mary, help us now. El jefe maximo. Jefe maximo. See, your, your Spanish is, uh, is uh, moving uh, way ahead. Uh, the president had um, enormous powers, uh, these were metaconstitutional powers. Um, for example, the Mexicans did not go through the trauma of having primary elections or having conventions or having firehouse meetings when they selected the candidates, especially the presidential candidate. They used their big finger, the president's big finger, el, de, el, el dedo. And so the big finger was El de Daso. And so the president, the incumbent president, who could not ever, ever, ever run for reelection, would um, uh, decide after consulting with the leaders in the PRI who the next president should be. And uh, he would uh, announce, TU, TU ERES EL PROXIMO PRESIDENTE, YOU ARE THE NEXT PRESIDENT. And with that announcement, everybody would get on the bandwagon and support... What's your name, please? Randy. And support Signor Randy <laughs> uh, as El Proximo Presidente. So you had this top-down control. Uh, you have the single party, so you don't have to worry about losing elections. Uh, any elections that the PRI lost was because the PRI allowed... ...minor parties, some of which they created, to win, to try to give the cosmetic effect that this was a plural system. And then there was ISI, which is Import Substitution Industrialization. And that meant that you threw up a high wall of protectionism around the nation. And then you invited domestic entrepreneurs and foreign entrepreneurs to invest... And uh, many American firms took advantage of the uh, um, ISI. And so uh, within the course of about 20 years after World War II, Mexico became a growing industrial economy. They wanted to diversify and not just be uh, earning foreign exchange from oil, gold, their beaches, and so forth. Um, And the ISI was a godsend for a political machine because it meant that you could reward the faithful with jobs. You needed hundreds of thousands of people to decide tariff rates to protect the economy, uh, to decide where railroads would be built in order to uh, benefit the investors, uh, to decide uh, on tax breaks for those who were willing to make capital investments in Mexico. And so the economy flourished uh, for about 30 years after World War II. It was uh, the the favored uh, 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 Cinderella uh, in a third world that was filled with uh, ugly stepsisters. However, The uh, ISI lasted too long, and the firms there became monopolies, and the monopolies, of course, impeded the efficiency and productivity uh, of the country. And so finally, when because of globalization in the 80s, they had to start considering tearing down some of these walls of protectionism. uh, They couldn't compete. Uh, because they were uh, producing, say, a toaster, uh, and um, you would put the piece of bread in, and it might uh, jump out, uh, could bruise the side of your face, could put your eye out, um, but it was the only toaster company in town, and they didn't do repairs. Uh, they didn't, uh, didn't fix your eyes. Um, and so in area after area, Mexico was characterized by Monopolies and oligopolies, one or two firms that controlled that sector of the economy. And regretfully, that is the same situation today. Uh, The second wealthiest man in the world is Carlos Slim. And Carlos Slim Slim, uh, controls telecommunications. Uh, When you go to Mexico, and I urge that you do, the resorts are quite safe, for example, um, don't make calls to the U.S. uh, from the phone in your hotel room, or you will get a sticker shock that will knock your eyes out. Uh, Buy a a calling card, uh, take a cell phone, but don't try to use the landlines because uh, Carlos Slim owns 95% of them and telephone service is lousy. There is a single oil company that the government owns, and it is just suffused with corruption and feather bedding. The same in electricity. uh, The same with regard to processed foods. And the same with regard to television. One giant firm, Televisa, dominates the the market. Well, Mexico still was able to survive um, with this rather inefficient system, uh, which kept the Pri in power, but did not give Mexico the chance to diversify its exports and to compete in the global economy until, oh, the 1980s. And at that point, a new party began to uh, show life. And this is the pond. And the pond was uh, sufficiently astute that it won the 2000 election with Vicente Fox. And in 2006, with Felipe Calderón. But the problem is Mexico's system, Is designed for a one party dominant uh, uh, regime and so you only need uh, one more vote than your opponent to win the presidency and so in the last presidential race the winners got roughly 33 percent one got 0.61 percent more than the other but what that means is that you don't have presidents with mandates and if there's no runoff, there's no encouragement for uh, parties to build coalitions, to work with each other, and the intolerance between and among parties is, uh, is, is hair-raising. Um, also, at about this time, when the um, pawn came in, the pawn offered itself as uh, uh, a clean, honest, Uh, party that would fight corruption. In fact, the PON became uh, uh, captive of uh, corrupt practices also. And the PON first won its uh, campaigns in in the uh, northern areas. Baja California, you know about Tijuana. Uh, Chihuahua, which has the highest uh, murder rate in the country, now, and uh, then they were successful in uh, Guanajuato, where Fox was from. Uh, the advantage though of the pre with all of its uh with all of its uh, blemishes, with all of its dishonest practices, with all of its vote rigging um, with all of its uh, failure to uplift the downtrodden in the country uh, where the income distribution is quite uneven, is that the pre-exerted top-down control. And so if there was uh, uh, outbreaks of violence, especially in northern states, um, the governor was expected to uh, suppress that violence. And if he didn't, then he was removed from office by the president. Um, in addition, the PRI, which corrupted every aspect of Mexican society, also uh, had a, uh, a corrupt relationship with the drug cartels. These are the traditional cartels, the good old cartels uh, in, uh, in Sinaloa, uh, for example, uh, Here is the Sinaloa uh, area. Uh, You had the Gulf cartel up up here. Uh, You had the uh, uh, Jalisco or Guadalajara cartel here. Uh, The PRI had worked out rules of the game. And these rules went something like this. Uh, We, the government, uh, in return for payments, uh, payments to politicians at the federal level, Payments to the police, the judicial police, a federal force, and payments to the army. We will turn a blind eye to your drug activities, importing, processing, trafficking, selling to the big U.S. nose, as one historian calls it. Um, In return, though, you have to abide by certain rules of the game. Uh, One you will not focus on civilians. You will carry out your activities uh, in the underworld. Secondly, you will not kidnap. Third, uh, you will not sell drugs in Mexico, uh, least of all to children. And fourth, you will recognize the turf of your competing cartels. So if a cartel in um, in, um, in Sinaloa is largely doing marijuana and cocaine and the cartel in uh, Michoacan for example is doing methamphetamines which are increasingly popular as a consumer drug uh, and the cartel in Michoacan wants to move its product to the US then there has to be an agreement with the Sinaloa cartel. That is, you have to have the right of passage across the Sinaloa cartel's territory uh, if you want to use its trafficking routes. And moreover, uh, if you're into methamphetamines, then you should not compete with the Sinaloans by undertaking the sale of marijuana or cocaine. And It was an ugly system. It was a corrupt system. But it worked because if the cartels got out of line, they knew that ultimately the president would come down on them like a ton of bricks and people would be disappeared or would be subjected to suicides that were often accomplished with three bullets in the head. Um, the pawn comes to power, uh, and Vicente Fawkes, this tall, six-foot-five, imposing figure, has a belt buckle that reads Fawkes, Mary, and has boots that have been hand-sewn uh, uh, from uh, the uh, uh, animals on his on his ranch. And he could wear a three-piece suit and talk to bankers in their idiom, Uh, Or he could go out on an ajido, a communal farm, and exchange stories with peasants in their idiom, sometimes using palabras verdes. And they're bad words. I know you've never heard any, but uh, they're palabras verdes. The pawn also decided it didn't want to work with that centralized system. And so it told the judicial police... uh, go to the next state, go back to Mexico City. Um, It told the army, governors want to have greater control over your activities. And while that was possibly well intended, what it meant was that you no longer had this top-down control. You no longer had these constraints. And um, the local police were completely vulnerable to intimidation and bribery on the part of the uh, the cartels and it often worked like this Uh, uh, Larry Wetzel uh, has just gone through the police academy he's got a spiffy new uniform he's got decent pay Uh, he's been trained in the uh, utmost uh, uh, most advanced uh, technological skills in fighting crime uh, he uh, he uh, has a uh, uh, subsidized mortgage for his home, and uh, he's uh, uh, going to be a clean, lean uh, law enforcement machine. Uh, he's sent to uh, a town being new from the academy. He wouldn't uh, be sent to uh, probably a, uh, a place like Lazaro Cárdenas. This is the port, by the way, through which much of the cocaine and precursor drugs for methamphetamines uh, uh, come. But he conceivably could be sent to, uh, oh, I don't know, Merida, uh, for example, or uh, uh, Chalpensingo, that would be a good place for Larry. And um, he's there uh, minding his business, trying to reorganize the police force so it, does, it acts professionally. And someone whom he doesn't know comes into his office and uh, slaps down an envelope uh, on his desk. And Larry opens the envelope, and there's $25,000. And Larry says, you know, what's this for? I'm certainly not going to take any bribes. And then uh, the uh, visitor opens another envelope, and it's got pictures of... Larry's wife coming out of church, Larry's children going into school, a picture of Larry's house. And so, obviously, the cartel knows uh, all about Larry's life. And uh, it says, we really don't want you to commit any um, uh, particular uh, criminal act. We just want to make sure your forces are on the eastern side of the city uh, next Thursday. Uh, And that you uh, reduce the number of jailers uh, who are on duty uh, next Saturday evening. Uh, It's the weekend anyway. You should give them some time off. And so, you know, Larry is uh, suborned uh, because he knows uh, that uh, uh, if he doesn't cooperate, uh, then there can be uh, 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 grave consequences. Uh, A true story. Not that what I've said so far isn't true, but a a more recent uh, uh, true story. Um, One of the states that really is a narco state is Tamaulipas. Tamaulipas, uh, on the other side of the border, you've got places like uh, Brownsville, uh, sort of the the Paris of the border. Um, But anyway, um, there was a, a magnet there who had a chain of stores and was quite wealthy and was part of the Tamaulipas establishment. His son was kidnapped. Well, the last thing you do uh, if you want to get to the root of a crime is to contact the local police because they probably helped arrange the kidnapping or at least made sure that the path was clear for the uh, kidnapping. So this... uh, impresario, this big businessman, uh, calls the governor of the state. And he says, uh, uh, Mr. Governor, although he knew him on a first-name basis, he said, Mr. Governor, my son was kidnapped by a newly emerging group called Los Zetas. Uh, They are former uh, Green Berets in the Mexican army who have gone to the other side. He said, my son has been kidnapped. If he's not returned to me, in the next 24 hours, I'm going to come to the state capital, Ciudad Victoria, and I'm going to kill you. Um, Guess what? Within 24 hours, the youngster was returned, and there was not a hair out of place on his head. Uh, The army is increasingly irate uh, that you have governors. And uh, I was in Mexico last month, and I would ask my friends, uh, who is an honest governor, someone whom you would, uh, you know, leave your children with if you were going away for a long weekend? And uh, people really had to think uh, because the governors have uh, become... Uh, co-opted by the cartels and this occurs in state after state after state because when the pre-lost power lost the presidency there was a vacuum created and the president the pawn presidents have no longer been hefe maximos but the governors live like maharajas uh, like feudal princes, and they have lots of money. They have control over the local police, uh, the legislators that are not bought, the state legislators that are not bought are rented, and uh, the governors have developed their own uh, packs uh, with the uh, with the cartels. And the concern is that uh, uh, what's in Mexico doesn't stay in Mexico and we're finding more and more of the cartels, especially los Zetas, recruiting Los Zetitos, the small Zetas, uh, who will serve as lookouts north of the border and will involve themselves as couriers and will help with the diversification of the drug activities because groups like La Familia, uh, those who chopped off the heads, and Losetas are not just involved in running drugs. Uh, they're involved in extortion, uh, in kidnappings, uh, in smuggling illegal uh, immigrants into the United States, murder for hire, uh, bank robberies, and uh, a whole host of activities. Uh, for this reason, I'm increasingly pessimistic about Mexico's future. I don't now think that it's a failed state uh, because the cartels don't want to topple the state. If you topple the state, say if you assassinate the president, that would energize the army. Uh, that would uh, completely alienate the uh, nomenclatura, the establishment. That would uh, uh, run the risk of bringing U.S. forces into Mexico. But what they want to do is to form what uh, Clay, uh, Crane Brinton called dual sovereignty. That is, you've got the officially elected governments, and uh, parallel to them, you've got uh, a narco government. And often the narco government is stronger, uh, has more firepower, and certainly has more wealth than does the regularly constituted government and so what the cartels want is to be able to uh, increase their fortunes which are uh, huge cressus like and they want impunity from any kind of reaction from the army or from the police Uh, in conclusion uh, I wanted to uh, indicate and really admit to you that in my my callow youth, uh, I made the mistake of going to law school. Are there attorneys in here? Uh, You won't admit it, will you? Okay. Uh, I made the mistake of going to law school. And I, of course, wanted to do pro bono work to help the poor and the downtrodden. And I was green as grass, and so nobody was going to pay me to represent them anyway. <laughs> uh, so my first case, which the judge uh, gave me, uh, was a murder one case. And uh, the, uh, my client was accused of killing his wife. Um, but they never found the body. But the circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. And it was clear that this fellow was going to get the needle or uh, uh, get a long, long stretch in the uh, four bar motel. Uh, So in my summary to the jury, I had to throw a Hail Mary pass. Uh, My respects to all of you who are not of the Catholic faith, (laughs) nor am I. But anyway, I had to throw a Hail Mary pass. And so I approached the jury these 12 fair-minded, open-minded people. And I said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, watch that door, watch that door, because within the next minute, the alleged victim of the crime is gonna walk through that door, and you will have to exonerate my client. They all looked. In fact, some people who weren't even in the jury looked. (laughs) And after about 15 seconds, I said, I have to apologize to you. I fibbed to you. Uh, Nobody is going to walk through that door. Uh, But the very fact that you looked means that you have reasonable doubt (laughs) about my client's guilt. And therefore, you must set him free. Uh, the jury goes and uh, deliberates maybe five minutes, ten minutes, comes back guilty. <laughs> and uh, I went up to the four lady of the jury, and I said, you know, you all looked at the door. How could you find my client guilty? And she said, your client didn't look. Uh, LAUGHTER Well, maybe if we keep looking, we will find something to be optimistic about, or that uh, comments or questions from the audience can uh, help me to um, change my current glasses into rose colored glasses. Yes, sir. Uh, well, the war on drugs has been an, an absolute disaster. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, not not as successful as our pacifying <laughs> Afghanistan. But um, anyway, uh, we're spending two thirds of our budget on interdiction, on uh, uh, on supply. The focus should be on demand. Uh, we are consuming now 80% of the drugs that are grown in or passed through uh, Mexico. And so we should be doing uh, much more in the way of advertising. Remember that scrambled egg ad a few years ago? Uh, more with regard to education in the schools. More with regard to treating the drug problem as a health question. And I think as so many, now I guess it's 13 states are doing moving to decriminalize uh, the possession and use of small amounts of uh, drugs for medicinal purposes, and I think that's going to increase. When there is up to $50 billion uh, being uh, uh, generated uh, and when there is such a demand for a product, you are not going to be able to stanch that demand. Um, we went through a period called uh, Prohibition. You're too young to remember it, but um, uh, uh, Prohibition was a a good idea. You had the churches, you had the Baptists and the bootleggers, both uh, working for Prohibition. And maybe there was a slight decrease in, uh, uh, in, in some liver diseases, but by and large, There was so much money to be made in bootlegging that uh, crime exploded. And if you can take the huge amounts of money out of the drug trade, it's not a panacea because the cartels will move into other areas, uh, but uh, you're you're more likely to uh, cut away sharply at that 30, 40, 50 billion dollars. So I think our... Uh, War on drugs has been a um, disaster, and uh, I think we're continuing that disaster with things like the Merida Initiative. And we have microphones for you, I see. Dr. Grayson. Could you introduce yourself first? (laughs) Dr. Grayson, I am uh, better known to you as Ready Kilowatt. I spent 30 uh, some years as a chief lobbyist for the power company, so I've uh, known George I, I, for a long I time. I bruises and sores I had so 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 the to, to prove it. Prove it. Um, I'm interested with you, cartels. How many cartels are there actually in Mexico? Um, there are about a half dozen major ones. Okay. then do they get together and say, guys, wait a minute now, there's six of us, we ought to be able to work this whole thing out. Like any other good organization, you, you all sit down and they've got somebody that runs, be the final authority, correct or not? Um, when the PRE was in power, you had the deals cut because the PRE was the enforcer ultimately, or the government, same as the PRE, was the enforcer. Um, and what the PRE hopes, because it's likely to recapture the presidency, Steve, in 2012, what the PRE thinks it can do is to go back to those old rules of the game. But the uh, La Familia makes up its rules as it goes along. Los Zetas uh, aren't bound by any current or potential rules. And so, yes, there are ad hoc agreements that take place. And uh, uh, But uh, because the uh, leadership of the cartels is evolving uh, and because you have Disputes that often uh, explode within cartels uh, the, uh, the the agreements are typically short lived unlike the days of the pre where they could really knock heads together if the rules weren 't followed uh, in the back well <sighs>
2: My name is Ruth Stotts, and I volunteer at the Historical Society Mm. in the Archives Room. I'm playing hooky from the Archives Room to hear you. I would like to know, they talk about decriminalizing uh, narcotics. But you can be a social drinker. I mean, I don't know how you compare it to Prohibition. You can be a social drinker, and it doesn't harm you. What I don't know, can you... Are drugs... Innately harmful to the human. I mean, can you take? Does anybody take a small amount of drugs and it doesn't harm them? Can you tell me something about the qualities of drugs and it's, <laughs> what it does to a human beings? <laughs> you know, um, th-
1: these are harmful to you, and and some of the. Um, Synthetic drugs, the methamphetamines, are extremely dangerous. Um, But the killings, and there have been 6,000 this year in Mexico drug-related, but the killings and the corruption that the drug culture induces suggest to me that uh, it's uh, uh, the least of the evils. There's no good solution.
2: I agree. It may 6,000 killings in Mexico, but what would happen to the users? How many million users are there in the United States who would be affected by this decriminalization and be harmed much more than, many more than 6,000?
1: Well, we're finding now that these uh, uh, kinds of, of ghastly murders are occurring um, as the Zetas and La Familia and the other cartels penetrate the United States. And the violence is generally not against average citizens. The average citizens, whether in Mexico or in the United States, who are killed, usually are in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's the army, it's the police, it's judges, it's members of other cartels. Um, But the incredible amount of money that can be made from conducting the current approach uh, of trying to um, stymie uh, supply, um, I don't think is going to work as long as you have a product that people want and that people are willing to pay a high price for. I think if you take that um, that profit margin out of the drug trade that you should certainly be able to reduce it. Now, with regard to something like uh, uh, marijuana, uh, from what I'm told, um, uh, I've never inhaled or even <laughs> even tried to smoke it, and, and none of my students at the College of William & Mary have either. <laughs> uh, uh, but, um, I mean, the danger of, of, of marijuana is that it might lead to addiction to something uh, something addictive like, uh, like tobacco. How would this <laughs> situation guide our foreign policy in our relationship? <laughs> well, uh, the Obama White House is more attuned to the uh, decriminalization of uh, the possession of small amounts of narcotics in this, uh, uh, in this country. Uh, they um, have allowed now 13, maybe 14 states to sell medicinal marijuana uh, over the counter or uh, in prescribed state stores. Part of that is just recognizing reality. Part of it is that the governments want to generate funds uh, from the sale of now-controlled substances. But uh, uh, I think that the intrusion, the incursion of the cartels into the United States represents a far greater threat to the well-being of main street Americans than does the Taliban uh, or Afghanistan, especially because if you're able to put pressure on the Taliban, it goes into neighboring Pakistan. So I think we've largely neglected uh, bilateral relations and we have been extremely patronizing of Mexico uh, to the uh, degree that We say, oh, you poor little Mexicans, Uh, what can we do to help you? Uh, When, in fact, Mexico is a powerhouse of wealth. It's got gold, silver, oil, natural gas, marvelous beaches, uh, museums, uh, historical, uh, well, um, archaeological sites, uh, lovely mountains, fisheries. It's got the 12th largest industrial capability in the world. Um, And uh, yet, for example, the Mexicans uh, pay only about 11% of GDP in taxes. Um, That's half what the U.S. pays. That's a third of what Canada pays. And that's on a par with Haiti, which is a failed state. And so there is a gap, a chasm, a grand canyon between the haves and the have-nots, and the haves would uh, prefer to have an immigration reform, in quotes, that would allow many more uh, poor Mexicans to come into the United States. They'd rather do that than to improve health care and to break the spine of a Hugely venal union that manipulates the public education system. And so I think the Mexicans have largely been irresponsible in many areas, especially with regard to immigration. But I think with regard to uh, the drug flows, they're absolutely right when they're saying that we at least share the problem if we're not the major precipitator of it. Two more questions? Right here. Uh, Dr. Grayson. Could you comment on whether or not in Richmond we have a problem in terms of Mexican cartels? I could not. Well,
2: the reason I asked, I heard I mean, a... Pre- somebody,
1: somebody here may, may, may know. Uh, I mean, academically, uh, I, I would be shocked if, 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 if there weren't a cartel presence in a city uh, the size of Richmond, but I don't know. Raleigh, North Carolina... I'm sure of because of DEA arrests there, but I don't know in Richmond. Well, there's clearly a presence in northern Virginia. And if that's the case, why do you think it wouldn't be here? It it isn't. I I suspect that it is. I just don't have any evidence to, to support that. This gentleman... I just wanted: Is there any cartel activity or drug activity in the southern part of Mexico? Does it affect Honduras and Guatemala? Well, first of all, Mexico doesn't have a southern border. Um. I mean, in theory, there are the surveyors' lines that are drawn that are drawn here, and you've got oh, I think eight uh, customs posts along that line but there are at least 200 places where you can cross that border it is an open sesame and even if the us were successful in styming drugs from mexico coming into the us and even if we were successful in styming the flow of of uh, drugs coming from afghanistan their largest cash crop, um, the flows would still come through Central America. I mean, the reason that Mexico has become the super highway for drugs is that in the late '80s, um, the DEA and the Coast Guard and other agencies were able to interdict Colombian flows uh, into Florida and the southeast um, of the United States, and so the Colombians looked for another route, and they have chosen either onshore or they have little what they call submarines, although the boats are barely out of the water, in which they come up the shore and they use Lazaro Cardenas as one of the major uh, facilities to offload their drugs. Manzanilla uh, is another. Mazatlan. Um, So, uh, yes, I mean, the... Uh, And Guatemala is a failed state. Uh, Honduras is probably uh, close to a failed state, although it's dominated U.S. foreign policy in the last two months, which I think is a a missetting of priorities. Um, But yes, you've got everything, um, all kinds of criminal activity. And what the problem is, in part, is that, say, in Tapachula, you can stand on the bridge there the, the, and watch the Suchiate River flow by and you see people crossing back and forth. Uh, the toll is now a dollar and this is for a truck tire uh, with a piece of uh, of uh, plywood on top of it. But nobody's asking for credentials. You go across the border <clears throat> into Guatemala um, and what you find is large parking lots full of cars with U.S. license tags that are out in the open, and they're there to be chopped and uh, and, and resold. So, I mean, this is an area uh, that is deteriorating uh, economically and socially, and the Guatemalan army is able to keep uh, uh, maybe one helicopter in the air on a good day. Uh, so... Uh, uh, the the problems are going to uh, uh, affect Central America uh, as well as uh, Mexico and the United States.
0: George, thank you for that. Well, you shouldn't. You shouldn't have.